Hey, it's Shannon Ballard. A reminder for you, if you enjoy Southern Mysteries, you can hear more when you become a Patreon member. Patrons hear bonus content called Southern Mystery Shorts each month. Head to patreon.com slash southernmysteries to join today. Lake Lanier is one of the largest tourist destinations in Georgia. Around 7 million people visit each year, despite its eerie history. Lake Lanier is one of the deadliest lakes in America. Some swear it's haunted by the spirits of those whose lives tragically end in the lake. Others believe it was cursed from the start because of the dark history associated with the land and people who lived in the area before the lake was created. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring the history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the story of what lies beneath the surface of Lake Lanier. As rain falls in Georgia's Blue Ridge Mountains and runs over waterfalls, it makes its way to Lake Lanier. The completion of the Buford Dam on the south end of the lake in 1956 turned the area's Chattahoochee and Chastity Rivers into Georgia's largest lake. Situated about 60 miles from Atlanta, Lake Lanier borders five counties, Hall, Forsyth, Dawson, Gwinnett, and Lumpkin. Lake Lanier was named for Georgia native, Sidney Lanier, a poet and Confederate Army veteran. The lake is known for its beauty with aqua blue colored water and stunning scenery that draws millions of people to visit recreational areas, marinas, and campgrounds every year. It's nearly 700 miles of shoreline is spread over 38,000 acres, operated by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Since the Corps opened this man-made reservoir in 1957, it's estimated at least 657 people have died at Lake Lanier. From boating collisions to car accidents that ended with vehicles in the lake, to many a soul entering the water for a swim, but never resurfacing. Why have so many people died at this lake? Officials generally associate the high number of deaths with a number of visitors, the popularity of the lake. Lake Altoona, Georgia's second most popular lake, has a comparable number of visitors each year. But Lake Lanier remains twice as deadly, which has left many people wondering if this lake is haunted, perhaps cursed because of the complicated history of its existence, complications that started early in the construction process. Many people who visit Lake Lanier don't realize it's a man-made reservoir. They assume it's always been there. Lake Lanier was part of a joint project by the Army Corps of Engineers to construct the Buford Dam 
in the 1950s. Following World War II, the U.S. government made developing the country's waterways a priority. The plan for the dam and lake was launched around 1946 to provide hydroelectricity and flood control from the Chattahoochee River and supply water for residents of the growing city of Atlanta. The project would cost nearly $45 million, and the initial response was positive because residents were told this would bring much-needed change to the surrounding counties. But as construction started, those counties felt the impact as roads were rerouted and bridges reconstructed. Then, there was the complicated process of buying the land needed for this project. The U.S. government estimated it needed 56,000 acres, which meant farms had to be purchased and families had to be relocated. Surrounding those farms were the center of the community, businesses, churches, and grave sites. It's estimated about 700 families were relocated, and the first to sell their land in April 1954 was 81-year-old Henry Shadburn. And some followed Mr. Shadburn's lead, took the money, and moved to make way for growth. But other families considered that a sellout. A lot of them had plans for their homes and farms. They wanted to pass them on to the next generation just as they had been passed on to them. Many vowed they would never sell. But there was no turning back time. This project moved forward, and eventually some people had to be removed to make way for progress. Along with the relocation of the living, the Corps of Engineers worked to relocate the dead, About 20 cemeteries were on the land needed for this project. The Corps disinterred a majority of the people buried in those cemeteries and reinterred them in neighboring community cemeteries that were out of the boundary of the lake. But some families refused to allow what they considered a violation of the final resting place of their loved ones. Still, the project moved forward. It took almost two years, from 1957 to 1959, for Lake Lanier to reach its full pool of 1,071 feet above sea level, with some parts of the lake almost 100 feet deep. Now, before the water began flowing into the lake, the Corps of Engineers removed anything they knew could float when water began flowing across the land, and slowly began to cover up trees, forest, concrete buildings, a racetrack called Looper Speedway, bridges, farmland, roads, grave sites, remnants of entire towns. Naming this lake for a Georgia-born poet who was known for his love of nature and the landscape of his home state may have seemed fitting in the 1950s. Sidney Lanier's best-known work, The Song of the Chattahoochee, pays tribute to this beauty. But as decades passed, the beauty of Lake Sidney Lanier was overshadowed 
by tragedy. Hundreds of deaths and painful events that unfolded on the land that was flooded to create the reservoir. Maybe this lake is cursed because of how it was constructed or because of the echoes of generations of violence and heartache beneath the surface of that water, beginning with the Cherokee. Forsyth County was Cherokee land for generations until gold was discovered in the area in 1829. White settlers began moving in, and by 1832, state leaders divided Cherokee land, including Forsyth, into 10 counties. And the Cherokee had no legal rights. They were forced off their land as the federal government granted white settlers the rights to all of it. By 1838, the Cherokee were forcibly removed from Georgia and relocated to a reservation in Oklahoma, making Forsyth County one of the southernmost origins of the Trail of Tears. By 1834, Cumming was incorporated as Forsyth County seat, but the gold rush ended by the early 1840s. And once new roads and railroads were built in North Georgia, that bypassed the area, many businesses closed. The Civil War bypassed the county, but the area faced further economical struggles during Reconstruction. The one consistency in Forsyth County's history has been racial intolerance. Tensions had always run high between white and black residents in the county But in 1912, that tension turned to terror following the alleged rape of a white woman by a black man and the rape and beating of a white woman near the banks of the Chattahoochee River in a town called Oscarville. On September 5th, 1912, Ellen Grease, the wife of a white farmer, accused a black man named Tony Howell, of raping her when they were discovered in bed together. There was a claim made that the relationship was consensual, and Grant Smith, a well-respected black minister in the county, came to the defense of Howell. A white mob took Smith to the town square, whipped him, and nearly lynched him. Sheriff Bill Reed and some local ministers begged the mob to leave, but they responded by attempting to storm the courthouse. Deputy Sheriff Mitchell Loomis locked Grant Smith in the courthouse vault to protect him, and that move saved his life. Rumors spread that black men were going to attack the whites of Forsyth County, and things escalated quickly. The governor declared martial law and ordered 23 National Guard troops to keep the peace in Forsyth. Days later, police claimed Tony Howell had confessed to the crime, but we'll never know what really happened. We only know tension continued to build and all hell broke loose in Forsyth County after the tragic attack of Sleety May Crow, the 18-year-old girl everyone called May. On September 9th, May was walking to her aunt's house along the Forsyth and Hall County line. 
as she was walking near Oscarville, someone struck her from behind and dragged her into the woods. She was raped and beaten by her attacker, who repeatedly struck her in the head with a large stone, crushing her skull. Newspapers falsely reported she had died, but May was alive but in a coma when she was discovered in the woods early the next morning. As doctors cared for May and her parents and eight siblings prayed for a miracle, a search team in Oscarville tracked down a black man who lived in the area and accused him of the crime with no evidence. He was the first black man they found, and they decided he was guilty. His name was Ernest Knox. The 16-year-old was arrested, along with his 18-year-old cousin, Oscar Daniel, his 22-year-old sister, Jane Daniel, 24-year-old Robert Edwards, who just happened to be in the area at the time, and their neighbor, Ed Collins, was held as a witness. Ernest was accused of the crime, and the others accused of involvement or trying to cover up what they may have known about it. As May Crow remained in critical condition, the accused were taken to the county jail in Cumming, which was supposed to be for their protection. On September 10th, an angry white mob of about 2,000 men pushed their way into the jail and gained entry to Rob Edwards' cell. Within minutes, they lynched him. They shot him and dragged him onto the streets, where they hung his lifeless body from a telephone pole just outside the courthouse. 16-year-old Ernest Knox was subjected to what's known as a mock lynching. Police placed a rope around his neck and told him they were about to hang him if he didn't confess to the crime. So, Ernest Knox confessed. By October, Ernest and his cousin Oscar faced trial. Both were convicted and sentenced to death by hanging. 12,000 people lived in Forsyth County in 1912, and it's estimated between 5 and 7,000 watched as Ernest Knox and Oscar Daniel were executed for the murder of May Crow. To many in Forsyth County, watching these men die was another part of the racial cleansing that had been underway in the county for weeks. May Crow had turned 19 while lingering between life and death. She died on September 23rd. On the day of her funeral, night riders moved across Forsyth County with white men riding to the homes of black families, invading their homes with shotguns and kerosene as they set fires and set off dynamite. This was the beginning of a months-long effort to drive out the 1,100 black residents in the county because the whites of Forsyth believed what had happened with Ellen Grease and May Crow had been the beginning of a race war. The white night Riders went door to door, telling black residents to leave as they torched their homes and threatened them at gunpoint. 
the writers burned down five black churches because churches were the center of the community. They burned down black-owned businesses. Every black resident was put on notice, leave Forsyth County or die. The Atlanta Constitution described what happened as a, quote, terrible state of affairs following the outrages committed upon white women in the county. They noted the white people were determined to drive every black person from Forsyth, writing, To this end, written notices have been put in rural mailboxes, posted on trees, and thrown on the doorsteps, warning them to leave. As a result, hundreds are leaving, and others will go, among them many who own land and livestock. A large number of white farmers were warned their homes and barns would be torched if they did not get rid of their black tenants and laborers, which caused indignation with some white people in Forsyth County who did not approve of the threats to apply the torch to the homes of white men and women. Violence and fear tactics by these night riders led to the expulsion of all black residents in Forsyth County. Nearly 1,100 people who in the early 20th century had worked to build successful businesses in Oscarville, along with farms, countywide. They made up 10% of the population of the county, and within a matter of months, they were forced to abandon their land, their homes, everything they worked for as they fled to save themselves and their families. The land owned by many of these black residents would eventually be taken over and owned by white families who had driven them out. Some who fled crossed the Forsyth County line into Hall County, but many of the residents left the South and headed to urban areas like Chicago and Detroit, where they tried to start over again, but could never forget the terror they experienced in Forsyth County. Oscarville would become a rare farming community in the decades that followed. It survived the boll weevil attacks on cotton that began in 1915 and survived the Great Depression. So in the 1950s, when the U.S. government came calling on white landowners offering money to buy their land to make way for Lake Lanier, some sold land their families had seized after the owners, black residents, were forced out back in 1912. Oscarville is one of many historically black American towns known as drowned towns that were destroyed to make way for a lake. The black owners of the property underneath the water that flowed over these towns were not compensated for their land or they were paid significantly less than their white neighbors. Alabama's Lake Martin is built on drowned towns, Benson, Alabama and Susanna, Alabama. Benson was founded by William Benson, the son of a former slave turned prosperous farmer. William Benson launched the first black-owned railroad in the country when he built the Dixie Line in the early 20th century. And Susanna, Alabama, 
Well, it was thriving. It had a gold mine, sawmill and gristmill, a school, church, all of the homes, businesses, and churches in these towns lie beneath the surface of Lake Martin. Those who refused to sell or leave their land learned there was no stopping the lake and dam that was coming. More than 900 bodies were moved from cemeteries in Benson, Susanna, and a little village of Irma before the land was submerged to make way for the lake. It's been said that as the water rose and began to cover churches, people sang hymns and mourned the loss of their town. There are many drowned towns across the country, and in the decade that followed the racial cleansing of Oscarville in 1912, the same thing happened in Rosewood, Florida, and in Tulsa, Oklahoma's Greenwood District. But there is something unique about Oscarville in Forsyth County. Patrick Phillips has written about it in his book, Blood at the Root, A Racial Cleansing of America. He says what made Forsyth County unusual is how the racial cleansing of 1912 continued to be intentionally passed down generation to generation. From 1912 until 1987, not a single black person lived in Forsyth County. Black people who dared enter the county knew they could face violence. Miguel Marcelli, an Atlanta firefighter, survived a shocking attack in 1980. He and his girlfriend attended a company picnic at Lake Lanier. Throughout the day, they were stalked by two white men. When they were leaving, Miguel and his girlfriend were ambushed by these men. Miguel was shot in the head, and as his girlfriend ran to call for help, she heard the shooter laughing. Miguel was shot in the neck and survived, and the two men were arrested and convicted. One of the men was Melvin Crow, who claimed to be a descendant of May Crow. Seventy years after black residents were driven out of Forsyth County, there were still people violently enforcing the belief they didn't belong there. Hosea Williams a civil rights leader who had been an aide to Martin Luther King Jr., fought for change in Forsyth County. In January 1987, a unity march in celebration of Martin Luther King Jr. Day was organized in coming around the Forsyth County Courthouse. It was meant to be a step toward reconciliation and healing, but the Ku Klux Klan organized counter-protest threw stones and glass bottles at the demonstrators, and the march was shut down. Hosea Williams refused to give up. One week later, he organized what would become the largest civil rights demonstration since Dr. King's funeral in 1968. Coretta Scott King, John Lewis, Jesse Jackson, they all marched with Mr. Williams and more than 20,000 people who gathered around the Forsyth County Courthouse. There has been some progress with racial and cultural diversity 
in Forsyth County. These days, 77% of the population is white, 15% Asian, and 9% Latinx. But the scars of the past remain evident. Black people make up just shy of 4% of the population of Forsyth County. It is hard to imagine a man-made lake situated over land that was taken from the Cherokee, then racially cleansed in 1912, wouldn't be cursed. And you can understand why some people feel the spirits of those who lived on the land, along with the hundreds who have died at Lake Lanier, might linger. Every day when people visit Lake Lanier, they're boating, swimming, adventuring over this land that represents shattered lives, crushed hopes and dreams, and overwhelming tragedy. The deadliest day in Lake Lanier history was Christmas Day, 1964. The Rogers and Brown families lived in Gainesville. The four adults and seven children spent Christmas Day together, opening presents, cooking, just having fun. Around 1 p.m., they decided to pile into the Browns' car to drive across Lake Lanier and buy apples at an orchard. Just as they were driving over the two-mile bridge, the driver lost control. The car clipped a guardrail, hit a power pole so hard it snapped it in half and flipped into Lake Lanier. Witnesses stopped and risked their lives to jump into the frigid lake to try to help. Four of the victims survived the accident, but it would take quite some time to recover the seven who died, two adults and five children. The car was on the bottom of Lake Lanier in a section about 30 feet deep. A dive team from the local fire department reported near zero visibility, but eventually they were able to recover the bodies. It was later revealed Mr. Brown was driving the car after drinking while celebrating Christmas before the family headed out on the road. This Christmas Day tragedy remains the deadliest single day in the history of Lake Lanier. Too often, those who have been victims of accidents of this kind or who have gone missing in Lake Lanier have never been recovered. There are so many obstacles below the surface that make recovering a body a challenge. From those old buildings to trees, some standing 60 feet tall, all resting on the bottom of Lake Lanier, making it difficult to dredge the lake to recover those lost in the water. Experienced divers who have assisted with recovery efforts tell of encountering total darkness, bumping into trees covered in years of sediment, and there's the danger of a diver becoming entangled in an underwater forest. The reality is, 
some bodies have never been recovered. We don't know exact numbers, but it's estimated between two and three dozen corpses remain in Lake Lanier. Buck Buchanan is a Georgia diver who has described his experience diving in the lake like this. You reach out into the dark and you feel an arm or a leg and it doesn't move. It's creepy. Lake Lanier has held on to the corpses of many unlucky souls. And some who have dared go into the water say they have encountered spirits in and around Lake Lanier. There have been many reports of a mysterious force pulling swimmers underwater, even causing boats to capsize. One of the most common reports of the unexplained along Lake Lanier involves sightings of a young woman in a blue dress who is seen walking up and down the Lanier Bridge. Back in 1958, two women, Delia Parker Young and Susie Roberts, went missing. The two had been out on the town, headed into Dawsonville in Susie's 1954 sedan when they stopped at a gas station and sped off without paying. Investigators discovered a set of skid marks across the road from the gas station and theorized the car skidded off Lanier Bridge into the lake. Divers were brought in to search for the car, but conditions were extreme, near zero visibility for the duration of their efforts. The car was never found, so police continued to search for the missing women. 18 months later, a local fisherman made a gruesome discovery. He found the decomposing body of a woman beneath Lanier Bridge. Her hands and two toes on her left foot were missing. Sadly, she had been in the water for so long, the coroner was unable to make a positive identification. The unknown woman was buried in an unmarked grave at Alta Vista Cemetery. But many locals believed, even told police, this had to be the body of missing Delia Parker Young. Several people reported they had seen this ghostly-looking figure wearing a blue dress walking along the bridge, and she had no hands. She looked lost, and by the time they turned around to help, she was gone. Locals took to calling her the Lady of the Lake and continued to report sightings of her on that bridge. Decades on, in November 1990, the mystery of those missing women was forgotten by many. But time had taken its toll on the bridge and renovations were needed. Construction workers dredging the bottom of the lake discovered the wreckage of a 1954 sedan filled with mud and half buried on the bottom of the lake. Inside were bones, later verified through dental records as the remains of Susie Roberts. Police felt this was the long-needed confirmation to rule the body found back in 1960 as that of Delia Parker Young. 
and their final report said the two had run off the road at Lanier Bridge. The unmarked grave at Alta Vista Cemetery was relabeled with the name Delia Parker Young. But answers don't always mean peace and resolution. People say they still see the Lady of the Lake wandering along the bridge in her blue dress. Legend says she's restless and searching for her missing hands. Poet Wallace Stevens wrote that human nature is like water. It takes the shape of its container. Consider the experiences, the emotions of all who once lived on the land at the bottom of Lake Lanier. And then consider the experiences and emotions of those who came after the water pooled and became victims of the lake. When you consider the importance of water in native culture, Lake Lanier may have been cursed the moment the natural flow of the Chattahoochee River was interrupted to make way for Buford Dam, which is the very reason Lake Lanier exists. Anthropologist James Mooney dedicated his life to the study of Native culture in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. At a time when historical works that considered Native culture often romanticized or blatantly discriminated against them, James Mooney was known as the first American to write Native history from the perspective of the tribes he was able to live with for a season in the Southeast, including Cherokee. In 1888, Mooney published Myths of the Cherokee, in which he wrote of coming to understand how central water was to life and its spiritual significance among the Cherokee who acknowledged this with a rite known as going to water. A healer would lead a group to water at daybreak every morning. The group would immerse themselves in the water at sunrise which Mooney described as a sort of rebirth. Going to water was vital to every part of their life, a ritual to obtain long life when the affection of a woman, recover from sickness, or call down prosperity. Water was life, and water was sacred before they were forcibly removed from their ancestral lands in the Southeast, Cherokee leaders spoke out against white leaders who wanted to create dams to transform waterways. Because the Cherokee believed when you alter the flow of water, of a river, you essentially kill the river. If you believe the Cherokee, the river's natural flow being interrupted to create the dam that made Lake Lanier a reality, will the power of that water for cleansing and renewal, for giving life, well, that was washed away a long time ago.
Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. And the part of the history of the land on the bottom of Lake Lanier that haunts so many of us is what happened to the Cherokee and what happened in Oscarville in 1912. No one got justice. To this day, May Crow's murder remains unsolved. Rob Edwards was lynched with no proof of involvement, and Ernest Knox and Oscar Daniel were executed after being tricked into a confession, which would never stand up in court today. There have been a few descendants of May Crow who say they believe the men who died in 1912 were not responsible for her death. And chances were missed to catch whoever attacked and killed May Crow. We've only touched on the surface of the history of Oscarville and Forsyth County. So if you want to dive deeper, I highly encourage you to read Patrick Phillips' book, Blood at the Root, A Racial Cleansing in America. You'll find more about his book, along with photos and sources for this episode, in the show notes at southernmysteries.com. This is the 100th episode of Southern Mysteries, and I want to say a big thanks to all of my patrons who help make this independent podcast possible, including our newest patrons, Matthew from Greensboro, North Carolina, Amy from Pearland, Texas, and Izzy and MJ from a mysterious location. They're enjoying bonus Southern Mystery shorts each month, and you can too when you join them in our growing group of supporters on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash southernmysteries to learn more and join today. You'll get immediate access to more than 20 Southern Mystery shorts as soon as you join. And remember, there are other ways to support the show, like sharing this episode on social, rating and reviewing it where you're listening, and following the show where you listen so you never miss a new episode. Thank you so much for you know whatever you do to help support the show. As I've said before, it's an independent podcast. I do everything. I, I research, I write, I record, I produce and edit and promote and try to market this podcast so more people can hear these stories that I think are, are so important. You know, everything from true crime to stories like today that really dive deep into history that has made other people uncomfortable or either has just been completely ignored by some. And I think these stories matter and need to be told. So thank you for helping me do that with this little independent podcast. I look forward to doing it for another 100 episodes with your help. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening.